Alright, we are progressing on our Through the Bible study. We, we, our goal was to cover the whole Bible in two years. And two weeks from today, we'll be on our last lesson. That's just amazing to me. Uh, how many books are there in the Bible? 66. Um, how many in the Old Testament? 39. Yeah, it's going to take a while to count them. <laughs> How many does that leave in the New Testament? 27, yes. Alright, and last week we finished the last of Paul's epistles. These two rows are his letters. We call them epistles. We still have some more letters to go. These are the general, I say last week, two weeks ago we finished that. Uh, we're on the general epistles now. Today we're going to do James, 1 Peter, and 2 Peter. Um, and then the following week we're going to do 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Jude, and part of Revelation. <laughs> Moving right along. Um, let me see here. Yeah, there's an outline for James. <clears throat> James is an interesting book. Um, who wrote it? James. Yes, but uh, there were lots of Jameses. The brother of James, the brother of Jesus. That's right. Yeah, um, he was one of the leaders in the church in Jerusalem. Uh, you read about him in the Book of Acts, especially in chapter fifteen. He he. We learn from Josephus outside the Bible that he was murdered by, at the order of the high priest. Um, just a few years before Jerusalem was destroyed. Um, this book is the most Jewish book, I guess, in the New Testament. Um, there's no mention of Gentiles at all in the book. Um, in fact, it uses a very Jewish word to, to talk about the assembly of the church. Anyone know? You don't get this from the English, but if, if anyone has heard about this from the Greek, you might know. Anyone know what that word is? The, the word used, it, when James says, if anyone comes into your assembly, he uses the word synagogue. Most every other place in the New Testament is translated as synagogue, which was, of course, the Jewish meeting place. But James uses that term. He's writing to Jewish Christians. And... Probably, he's writing fairly early in the church. This may actually be the very first letter written, first book written in the Holy Testament, and so he—they're still using the, the Jewish terms like synagogue. Later, that got replaced with the word church, um, which is a Greek word. It was the word church is the word ekklesia, the Greek word, which the Greeks used it to talk about a, a city. A, a city meeting, like a town meeting. Um, the another unusual thing about the Book of James, and that scholars that know about these things say that um, James writes in very excellent Greek. They said there's only one New Testament book written in better Greek, and that is the Book of Hebrews. Which seems odd that the two books that are both addressed to the Hebrew Christians would be the ones in the best Greek. They mentioned that Paul's Greek was much more of a provincial Greek. Um, 
you know, country type thing, I guess. Um, the other thing to notice about the book of James is that it's you could consider it to be an expansion of the of the Sermon on the Mount. Many of the themes that are, are in the Sermon on the Mount are covered in the book of of James. And of course the Sermon on the Mount was preached by Jesus to Jews. And the Sermon on the Mount deals with sins that are predominantly Jewish sins. James does not deal, as far as I can tell, he does not deal with any sins that would be unique just to Gentiles. Um, one of the sins, anytime you have a book to the to Gentiles, in, in general book, you gen, they generally mention uh, sexual sins, you know, the passion and, and uh, fornication, things like that. And James doesn't deal with those uh, because he's writing to to Jewish Christians. That was not a and not that not that Jew, Jews are perfect, but in general, if you look at a, a, if a Jew is going to commit a sin, it's going to be something different than if a Gentile commits a sin. All right, so we'll just look, go through the outline here. Uh, in verse one, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. So again, very Jewish. But we understand he's not talking about all Jews. He's talking really to the Jewish Christians. Um, and he says in verse 2, Consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. It may well be that this was written during one of those early persecutions that we read about in the book of Acts. The very first one we read about um, was started at the after who was killed? Stephen. Stephen, yes. And who was the ringleader in that persecution? Saul. Saul, yeah, who later became the Apostle Paul. But he wasn't a Christian back then. And we read in Acts chapter 8 that the, that the Christians were scattered all over the place at that point. So that it could well be that, that James wrote this letter to them at that time. There was another persecution started later on when Herod killed uh, James, the brother of John, with the sword. And he wanted to kill Peter, but you remember the angel let Peter out of prison. Um, so they're, they're going through trials, and, and he's, he's dealing with that. Um, I picked up this interesting chart. Actually, I made the chart, but the points themselves come from an article I read by Daniel B. Wallace on the internet. He says that James uses the, the chiasm form quite a bit. Um, what is a chiasm? Linda? Yeah, John has this way he describes it. A mirror. a mirror, yeah, yeah. That's John's way of describing, which is a good way to put it. If you put a mirror right here between D and D prime, right there, the points above that match. They correspond to the points below that, so that um, you have this amazing symmetry in 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 the argument. 
so that he starts in verse 2 trusting God's sovereignty in the midst of trials where he says consider all joy my brethren when you encounter various trials and then he ends up coming back to God saying the believer ought never to blame God for his temptations or trials but instead should thank him for his goodness and sovereign care so that the two correspond then we go to point B trials produce perseverance perseverance produces maturity and then for point B prime he uses the same word perseverance or perseveres the one who perseveres in his faith in spite of the circumstances will be blessed and rewarded with the crown of life now I mentioned if you're trying to compare this in your Bible um, most Bibles don't use the word perseverance in verses 3 and 4 but they do use that word in verse 12 but in the Greek it is actually the same word the, the only Bible I could find that used the same word for those two that I, I checked about half a dozen was the NIV so if you're reading the NIV, you'll notice that comparison, which I've seen other places where the NIV kind of catches word plays in the Greek a little bit better than other translations. Um, and then the third point, God gives wisdom and all good things to the one who believes. And then the corresponding point, C prime, since God is the giver of all good things, if he has given the believer wealth, he has given him some, if he has not given the believer well, sorry, he has given him something else. Character. And then when you get to the middle, genuine faith must remove doubt, and the corresponding one, and right immediately after that, the one who doubts is unstable and will receive nothing from the Lord. So, interesting to see a, a structure like that. Um, what other book in the New Testament do we find a lot of chiasms in? What? Revelation. Yeah, the book of Revelation, it has a lot of these in it. Yes. Alright, so then starting in verse 19, we have a section called Listening and Doing. In verse 19, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Why should we be slow to anger? He says in the next verse. Yeah, the anger man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Hey, does God ever get angry? Yes. He does, yeah. It's not wrong. Anger is not wrong. The problem is, when we humans get angry... Uh, what? That's right. Different reasons than when God gets angry. <laughs> Generally selfish reasons. <laughs> so it doesn't work... Yeah, what? Yeah, it, it doesn't work God's righteousness when, when, when we get angry. So the solution to that is be quick to hear but slow to speak. If you're slow to speak, you'll be a little bit slower to anger too. Um, verse 22, But prove yourselves doers of the Word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Um, and it's one thing to read the Bible and, and say how wonderful it is is another thing to actually do what it says. And this is what James is trying to address. Verse 25, But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having to become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. And he says, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. 
Now the tongue, he's going to bring that up again later in the book. Um, and then in verse 27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Now there's orphans and widows things. He's going to bring that up again in a little bit using a different term. Now, orphans and widows, well, what's the problem with orphans and widows? They're destitute. Yeah, they're, they're very poor. Um, they have no one to take care of them. So if someone has pure religion, he cares about these people and he looks into the, them and, and tries to help them out. Interesting enough, that leads us right into our next topic, favoritism. In, ver, in chapter 2, verse 1, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Now, if we're going to have favoritism towards someone that just walks in the door, we've never seen it before, he walks in the door, what do we usually base it on? Appearance. Yeah, their appearance. And who gets the favor? Best yeah, the ones that look nice, the ones that are dressed, you know, with, you know, designer clothes and that kind of thing. And that's exactly what James talks about here. If a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, which one's going to get the favorable treatment? James says that's exactly wrong. <clears throat> but notice, the poor guy comes in and he gets poor treatment, but if you just go back two verses, what's pure religion do toward people that are poor? <laughs> yeah, James is picking up on that theme. Um, let's see where I am here. Yeah, in verse 4, Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Verse 5, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him? In other words, God doesn't see like we see. Um, we see someone that doesn't have much money and, and hey, they can't do much for us, can they? And that, but God looks at them and He cares about them. He's the one that made them. And so James is saying, let's not look at these people from a selfish standpoint. Who can help us? Let's look at it from God's standpoint. Who does He care about? And by and large, the people that have been the most faithful to God through the years have been poor people, not rich. Um, I was talking this past week. I got my furnace repaired, and I was talking to the furnace repairman. He was telling me that his poor customers are the are the most prompt to pay his bill. He says the only times he's ever been stiff for a bill has been by rich people. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? <laughs> I made sure I paid my bill. <laughs> um, well, of course, the truth of the matter is all of us are rich when you look at what's, you know, the general world, you know, the world in general, all of us are rich compared to what people in other countries are making. It's just, um, we are really blessed. All right. Um, verse 12 So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty, for judgment will be merciless 
to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Where else in the New Testament do we read about do not judge so you won't be judged? The Sermon on the Mount. (laughs) Yeah, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, is when Jesus says, uh, do not judge so you won't be judged. Because with whatever measure of judgment you use, that's what will be judged back to you. And you remember I told you that James follows the Sermon on the Mount quite a bit. Alright, now we talk about faith and works. Um, According to Paul in the book of Romans, how are we justified? By faith. faith. Yeah. Now, as I think most of you know, that can lead to some misunderstandings. (laughs) Someone says, oh, I'm justified by faith, so now it doesn't matter what I do. And then they just don't do anything. And so James is addressing that. The the kind of faith Paul was talking about in the book of Romans is a faith that works. That's the kind of faith he's talking about. Not not the kind of faith that James is rebuking. But he says, if someone says he has faith, but he doesn't have works, can that faith save him? In fact, the only way I can know that someone has faith is... If I see what they do. <laughs> now, God can see the heart. But from my perspective, the only thing I can see is what they do. In fact, that's the only way I can really see what my faith is like. <laughs> I can only look at what I do. How else do I know how much faith I have? Um, so now, what works does James suggest as an illustration in the next verse? Feed and clothe the poor people. Yeah, He keeps coming back to that, doesn't He? <laughs> we had it in chapter 1. We've already had it in chapter 2 with how our attitude toward people. Now He talks about feeding them. He said a brother or sister. Which, a brother or sister, yeah. Which means start with the household of God. Absolutely, yeah. Um, Alright, now let me see where I want to go next. Um... Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? Now, you remember in the book of Romans, Paul used Abraham as an illustration of being saved by what? By faith. Yeah. Abraham believed God and God counted to him for righteousness. So now James picks up on Abraham and notice he says, our father. The people he's writing are all descended from Abraham. They're they're Jewish Christians. But how was he justified by works? When he offered up Isaac. Now, let me ask this. Was that before or after God said God counted his faith for righteousness? Afterwards, yes. It was in Genesis 15 when he believed God. Of course, he believed him before that, but in Genesis 15 it makes a statement God counted him for righteousness. It was in chapter 22, years later, when he offered up Isaac. So James is not trying to tell us for the very first time in his life Abraham got saved because he finally did something. No. He had been saved all all those years. But he had been saved by a faith that works. And so when God said do something, he did it. He demonstrated the kind of faith he had. So faith was working with his works and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. 
All right. Um, now the next chapter, taming the tongue, which we had the tongue back in chapter one, being uh, slow to speak. Now in chapter three, he says, "Let let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment." The big danger of being a teacher is what's the tool the teacher uses? The tongue. And the tongue is the most difficult member to tame. And James even talks about how you know, all these different animals have been tamed, but who can tame the tongue? Kind of an interesting picture. And he compares it to something that's not a not animate, an inanimate object. What 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 inanimate thing is the tongue compared to? Fire. Yeah, a ship. That's true. The the rudder of a ship, and it's also compared to a fire. Um, you start a fire with a very small flame, but it can rapidly get way out of control. And that's what he's talking about with the tongue here. He says in verse 9, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. It shouldn't be that way. Now, in verse 13, verse 13 he talks about two kinds of wisdom. Um, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. Now, most people don't understand wisdom from that standpoint. Most people would consider someone wise if he's got lots of <coughs> PhDs, you know, and, and and is very respected. You know, he he, he writes uh, some uh, um, a book about you know really smart things like. Um, Stephen Hawking that that came up with theories about how black holes work and things like that, and we look at that and we say, "Wow, that guy's really wise." James says, "Hey, you want to be wise? Show it by being gentle, by the way you behave toward other people around you. That's how to be wise." He says, "If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth." <clears throat> I think the reason he's talking about wisdom is because someone someone who thinks he ought to be a teacher. Obviously, thinks he's wise, and and so he's he's not really changing subjects here. Uh, James is just saying, "Hey, you think you ought to be a teacher? You think you're really smart? Why don't you show up by how you behave?" And pretty heavy, um, pretty heavy judgment there. All right, now in chapter four, he warns against. Worldliness. <clears throat> what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Jews had this problem. Everybody has this problem. We want to pamper ourselves. We want whatever makes us feel good. And and when we do, when we seek that instead of be seeking God, we're making an idol out of these pleasures. And and the end result is just is is chaos, you know, because if we're all after pleasure instead of after, all after God, we're not going to get along with each other. And that's exactly what James says in these next few verses here. So in verse four he says, "You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God." Now, let me ask sort of a side question here. Adulteress, that's a woman, right? That commits adultery. Why does James call these people adulteresses? Is he only writing to women? 
churches. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is married to God. And so if people in the church go after idols, they're adulteresses because that's an unfaithful wife. <laughs> so that's why he calls it. Now I mentioned the New King James actually says adulterers and adulteresses because it, it's based on Greek manuscripts that are not as accurate as the ones that the New American Standard is based on. And somebody in the Middle Ages, a monk in a monastery that was copying this, decided that he needed to cover both men and women there by adding adulterers. He didn't understand what James meant. <laughs> Verse 7, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and what will he do? He will flee from you. Yeah. <clears throat> Verse 11, Do not speak against one another, brethren, who speaks against a brother or judges his brother, speaks against the law and judges the law. So we're back on judging again. Verse 13, Come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business, business and make a profit. What's wrong with doing that? God is the one who determines what it, there is nothing wrong with going to a city and doing trade and making a profit. There's nothing wrong with that. There is a whole lot of problem, though, in doing it without taking God into consideration and thinking that, you know, I've got the world by the tail. You know, whatever I purpose is what's going to be accomplished. Um, we, need, we need to realize that God's the one in control and He may not intend for us to do that. Now, in chapter 5, he talks to the rich. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. My guess is there weren't very many of those people that were reading this letter. <laughs> this is a lot like the prophets in the Old Testament that, that, that rebuked the rich people for the way they treated the poor people. Um, and James is doing the same thing. Um, in verse 4, Behold the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. This is just like the, my furnace repairman saying that it's the rich people that stiff him. He, he said he hasn't had it happen more than maybe three times all the years, but it's always been people that had plenty of money. <laughs> and here you've got these rich people who've hired poor people. They can, you know, they're very poor if, they, if all they can do is get a job harvesting in the guy's fields. And yet, he cheats them out of their own money. Now that's, that kind of thing still happens today. I, I saw not too long ago, there was a, a lawsuit by workers at Walmart complaining that their managers were making them clock out and then keep on working off the clock. And these are the lowest paid people in the whole country. And yet, the manager is taking advantage of them so he looks better. Nothing has changed. <laughs> Sad. So then, um, in verse 7, he says, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. Now he's talking to the poor people that are actually being abused by the rich. And he's urging them to be patient. Hang in there, he's saying. Verse 9, do not complain, brethren, against one another. In verse 13, is any among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He has to sing praises. And then in verse 17, he urges prayer based upon the example of who? 
Elijah, the prophet in the Old Testament. God answered his prayers, and the implication is God will answer our prayers too. Alright, that's the book of James. Now we go into 1 Peter. I deliberately spent more time on James because the other two books we've studied very recently in the Wednesday night class, and most people have been in the Wednesday night class, so I'll try to move faster since I've got a lot of material to cover here in 15 minutes. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen. Now, on the map, there's Pontus, Pontus, Cappadocia, Galatia, Bithynia, Asia. So this is, today, it's in what country? Turkey. Turkey, yeah. Um, which, this is, this, is a journey, this is Paul's second journey, so he went right through some of this area. <clears throat> Who was the guy with him on that journey? Pontus. That was first journey. Silas, yes. Any connection with Silas in this book? Yes, Peter was writing it along with Silvanus. That's another word for Silas. So, um, he and Silas are writing this letter, although, I mean, it's of course from Peter. But Silas may have been the one that that was telling Peter about this, because Peter was not writing from this. Where was Peter writing from? It's in that same verse. Babylon, yeah, which is east. I'll show you later on the map where that is. But um, he he knows these bre- these brethren here are are having troubles, and so he's writing to them to try to encourage them. So he begins with praise for God's grace and salvation. Um, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Um, let me see I'm going to jump ahead to verse 10 as of this salvation the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries now grace is a word that Peter uses quite a bit in this book and in fact at the very end he tells us he was writing to let them know this is the true grace of God it's kind of the theme of the book is this grace What is what is grace? It's a gift. It's favor. God has given us His favor. He's extended His grace to us. But for these Christians, this might have been a big question for them because what was the reward they seemed to be getting for this great favor of God? Persecution. Persecution, that's right. Peter talks about the fiery trial coming upon them. So Peter is trying to encourage them to understand that no, this really is the true grace of God. It's really a wonderful blessing. I mean, prophets in the Old Testament prophesied of it. That they didn't live to see it, but they, they predicted it. And now it's come upon you. It's just a, it's a wonderful thing. Um, let me see where... <clears throat> Verse 12, It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. So, what they had, and of course what we have, is, is just fantastic. Angels would like, like to look into it. It's such 
an amazing thing. Um, so the encouragement is that Peter wants them to do is, since you know you you have been given such a great grace, live accordingly. And so this next section, which is a very long section, several chapters, um, is holy living. That's the way we ought to live if, if we appreciate what we've been given. So in verse 13, Therefore prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're standing in God's grace right now, but when Jesus comes again, we'll get an even greater measure of grace. And so we need to be fixing our hope on that. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. Are these people Jews or Gentiles? They're Gentiles. And the Gentiles lived to a great extent in lust. Um, this is this contrast with the book of James. In verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, what were we redeemed by? By the blood of Jesus. That's right. Chapter 2, verse 2, like newborn babies long for what? The pure milk of the Word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. That's a very interesting. I love that phrase. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Um, we all we all have experience of being Christians. We know God because we've had a relationship with Him and we've tasted how kind He is. Um, in verse 4, "...and coming to Him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men." And then he says in verse 5, "...you also as living stones." He's picturing the building of a building. And what do you suppose this building is? The temple. It's the temple. That's right. Uh, we're part of a spiritual temple. The foundation stone is what? Jesus. And that's the very stone that the workers who were in charge of building this, they saw that stone and they said, this will never do, and they threw it out. <laughs> Just like the world was throwing out Christians. That's why they were being persecuted. Um, all of us are stones built on top of Jesus as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. Um, So in verse 12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. Then he has various, he addresses various situations. Verse 13, submit to every human institution. Um, in verse 23, when Jesus was reviled, what did he do? Yeah, he did not revile in return. He entrusted himself to God. Chapter three, verse one. He's talking to what group of people? Wives. Wives. Yes. Be submissive to your husbands. In verse three, then um, he talks about their their clothing, and he's not telling them it's wrong to wear nice clothing. But what he's saying is what what your emphasis needs to be on. The inner person, the person of the heart. Um, verse seven, he addresses husbands how to behave with toward their wives. Um, in chapter four, then, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, 
Arm yourselves also with the same purpose. They were suffering and then he wanted them to um, live as they should. Um, verse 14, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And then chapter 5, verse 1, he talks to elders of the church. They were the shepherds of the flock. Um, in chapter 5, in verse 5, he talks about the younger men, how they need to be subject to their elders. In verse 8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And then we get to the purpose of the letter in verse 12. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. It's not a fake. Just because you're suffering persecution, don't think that you've been misled. And then in the next verse, um, he says, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. I assume he's with the church there in Babylon. Um, and so on this map, this, is, this map actually shows what things were like a couple hundred years before Jesus, but it was the only one I could find that had Babylon on it. So here's Babylon. Peter was and Silas. And up here is the area that he's writing to. But there was a large Jewish population in Babylon so that wherever there was a Jewish population, the church would have gone. And so, and Peter, I guess, had traveled to that area to visit with those Christians. Um, Alright, I've got one more book, but this is the shortest of the, of the three. Second Peter. Um, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Um, this was Peter's last letter, as he as he mentions in verse thirteen and verse fourteen, and knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, he was going to die soon. Um, Probably he was he was killed under Nero. Nero had instituted a, a very fierce persecution against the church. So in this letter, he wants to make sure that the Christians will stay faithful after he's gone. And so in the first chapter, he talks about things that we can add that will help us to stay faithful. So in verse 5, what should you add to your faith? Diligence. Yeah. Well, no, you, you should apply diligence to add to your faith, but what should you apply add to it? Goodness. Yeah, moral excellence or goodness. To your moral excellence, add knowledge. And then he keeps going a whole list of things to add. Things that we can never get enough of. Then in... Um, let me see this. All right. Starting in verse 12, I will always be ready to remind you of these things even though you already know them. This is, this is the old, old man Peter who's, who's, who knows he's going to be gone before long. He wants to remind them because they need to remember these things. Um, verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Once Peter goes, once Paul goes, and they both died probably not too long 
far apart. An uh, awful lot of the apostles are gone at that point. And so Peter wants to make sure that Christians remaining who didn't, who never had seen Jesus understood that Peter didn't make up these things. He saw it. He saw Jesus with his own eye. And he talks about um, when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration and, and the voice came, this is my beloved Son. He was there. He saw it. Um, Alright. Then in chapter 2, he has things they should remove from themselves, which is false teachers. Chapter 1, add some things. Chapter 2, take some things away. False prophets, false teachers, just a terrible thing. He says in verse 2, many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned. Um, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. We need teachers. They're, they're very important. But when you get a false teacher, someone who, who is, he has his own agenda to try to either get rich off of the church or get something else out of it, um, it's just deadly. It's just deadly to the church. And, and Peter wants to warn them about it. Um, he says in verse 14, "...having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children." Um, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. What book of the Bible tells about Balaam? The book of Numbers. Yeah. Peter's reminding them about. Of course, Balaam ended up by getting killed by uh, judgment of God for his sins. Then. In the third chapter, and there's only three chapters in this book, he um, he talks about the uh, the Lord's return. In verse four, there's going to be people that are going to kind of come along saying, "Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation." They're trying to attack the hope of the Christian. Verse eight, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like what. A thousand years. And a thousand years like one day. God doesn't count time like we do. So just because a thousand years go by doesn't mean that God thinks that's a long time and like He's maybe maybe late or something. He, he knows what He's doing and it's, it's going to happen in His in His time frame. And so finally in verse 17, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Amen. Any last thoughts or questions? Alright, I appreciate everyone's help.